a deathly silence fell upon the people. Fear as thick as fog swept over the masses. No one spoke because no one could. Knees knocked, palms swept, and everyone held their breath in terrified anticipation. Three days earlier, Moses had come down from the mountain bearing these instructions from the mouth of God. Consecrate yourselves today and tomorrow and wash your garments and get ready. For on the third day, the Lord himself will come down from Sinai and you will meet with your God. And then Moses commanded the people that boundaries should be set all around the foot of the mountain. And he sternly and severely warned the people, whoever touches this mountain shall surely die. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And for two days there was silence on the mountain. But on the third day when morning broke, the mountain began to rumble. And a thick cloud descended and enveloped its peaks. And lightning flashed across its face. And suddenly the air was pierced with the blast of a trumpet. And inside the camp, the people shuddered in fear. It was time to meet with their Lord. And as they stood in silence at the foot of Sinai, the ground beneath their feet began to shake. And the mountain trembled violently, and then they saw it, fear, fire rather, descended out of heaven and and rested upon the top of the mountain. And the, the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder and louder, and they knew that the Lord had arrived. And then Moses spoke from the midst of the people, and God answered in thunder, summoning Moses up to the summit. And by the time Moses had ascended the mountain, the Lord met with him and he again warned him that anyone, anyone from the midst of the people who drew near to his holy mountain would die for his wrath would break forth against them. And then the Lord addressed his people from the top of the mountain and he issued to them ten covenantal commands. And when he had thundered forth his last commandment, all of the people shrunk shrunk back and trembled in fear. And they pleaded with Moses saying, you speak to us, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Israel had cause to be afraid. This God who spoke to them from the top of the mountain was not a God to be trifled with. He was a God to be feared. He was not a God to be touched. He was a God to be reverenced. And so from that point forward, Moses mediated between God and the people. And he represented God before the congregation of Israel and represented the congregation of Israel in the presence of God. And sure enough, as we read through the pages of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy... Those few times when God did speak directly to the people, sinners perished by the thousands. And I would tell you this morning that the God who thundered from Sinai still speaks. And and we've heard 
his warning voice in the words of chapter 3. When he told us, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, as your fathers did in the wilderness. They went astray in their heart and they did not know my ways and they did not believe my promises and they did not trust my word and they did not love me and so I swore in my wrath that they would not enter my rest and neither will you if you do not believe. See, we find in the words of chapter 3 and in the warnings of chapter 4 the truth that God is still provoked to wrath. By unbelief. He is still angry with those who refuse to trust him. He still rumbles from Sinai against evil and against wicked, unbelieving hearts that turn away from the living God. See, nothing nothing has changed between Exodus and Hebrews, Old Covenant to New Covenant, in terms of God's disposition towards unbelieving sinners. But today, God speaks from a different mountain to those who believe. He doesn't speak any longer to believing sinners with the thunder and the lightning of Sinai, but with the welcoming voice of Zion. And what comes from Zion are not ominous words of of warning, but comforting words of grace. And so we hear from Mount Zion the words, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, draw near to me with confidence, and I will give you mercy, and I will give you grace to help in your time of need. And as I read Exodus 19, and as I read Hebrews chapter 4, and I put them side by side, I'm left wondering what has changed. What can possibly account for such a change of tone? Do not come near and do not touch my mountain. Come. Come to me. Draw near to my throne. And you will receive not wrath but mercy. And not anger but grace. What has turned the warning and the threat of death to anyone who came close into an invitation for His people to draw near. Because we know this, we know it's the same God who speaks in Exodus 19 that speaks at the end of Hebrews 4. It's not as if He has somehow evolved. He has not changed in His essential nature into a kinder, gentler version of Himself. Sort of like a God 2.0 for the New Testament. No, something immense has taken place. Something cosmic has transpired that has changed. Not God in His essential being and nature, but His disposition towards believing sinners. And as we're going to see this morning, that something immense, that something majestic, that something cosmic is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our great High Priest. After the warnings and the threats of Sinai which we've received over the past few weeks, it is good for us to receive this morning a dispatch from Zion. A word of grace rather than a word of warning. And so just as I exhorted you 
over the last couple of weeks to receive the word of warning as, as it is intended. That is addressed to the people of God of every age, including this age, including you. The warnings are for you, First Baptist Nixa. In the same way, the words of grace are for you, First Baptist Nixa. And I've learned something in my days. I've learned that sometimes it is more difficult to believe that the words of grace are intended for me than to believe that the words of warning are intended for me. And all of them are intended for you. So receive them in the way in which they are intended. You, this morning, believing sinner, are beloved of God in Christ Jesus and you are warmly and graciously invited to draw near to God because... You, beloved, you have a high priest who is right now standing at the right hand of God interceding for you. And that's good news. The structure of this passage is really quite simple. You have it before you on your bulletin. There are just two exhortations and each each exhortation is grounded in a statement of truth. So exhortation number one comes to us like this, let us hold fast our confession. Why? Here's the statement of truth. Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Exhortation number two, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy in our time of need. Why? Statement number two, because we have a high priest who is sympathetic and familiar with our weaknesses. So we're going to unpack both of those this morning, beginning with the first in verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. And why should we hold fast our confession? Since or because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. In order to press into this verse, verse 14, we really need to ask of it two questions. What does it mean that Jesus has passed through the heavens, and what does it mean for us to hold fast our confession? And we'll deal with the second first. What does it mean, hold fast our confession? I meditated on that verse this week, and and I began to ask myself, why is the author asking us, exhorting us, instructing us to hold fast our confession? Confession. A a word that has specific reference to our words, our speech, what proceeds forth from our mouth. Homo logeo, to say the same thing as. Because that's totally not what I expect coming off of the last two or three weeks. Let me tell you what I expect to find in verse 14. I expect him to say, let us hold fast our confidence, like he did in chapter 3 and verse 6. Or let us hold fast our assurance, like he did in chapter 3 and verse 14. In other words, after we have learned that it was unbelief that caused the Israelites to forfeit God's promised rest, right? Chapter 3, verse 19, they did not enter because unbelief. What I expect to find here is an exhortation to faith. But that's not what we have. Let us hold fast our confession, King James' profession. And there's a reason why we find this. See, the author knows what he's doing. He has a purpose in using the word confession instead of confidence. 
Confession instead of assurance. Confession instead of faith. It's because the outward confession of our faith in Jesus the Son of God is the sure and necessary fruit of genuine saving faith. The connection between faith and outward confession or profession is so close and tight in the New Testament that according to the words of Scripture, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be an incognito Christian. A faith that does not confess is a faith that does not save because it is not real faith to begin with. I want to take you to two passages that bear this out and show you why it's important for the Hebrews and why it's important for us. The first is found in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. I'd like you to turn there with me, or if you're familiar with it, you probably know it from your Awana verses. Chapter 10 and verse 9. Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, If you confess with your mouth, there's that word confess, mouth, speech. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness or justification. And with his mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now let me tell you what Paul is not doing in these verses. Paul is not advocating some two-step process of conversion. He's not advocating a two-step process of salvation as if first someone believes with their heart and they receive God's declaration of righteousness. They're justified. But then they open their mouth and they confess and that's when God sort of completes it and and he saves them. First I'm justified and then I confess and then I'm saved. This is not a two-step process for getting saved. Rather what Paul is doing is he's using them in parallel. And he's using faith and confession as virtual synonyms of one another. Just as, in other words, there is no essential difference between justification and salvation. So in Paul's mind there's no real difference between belief and confession. One ancient theologian even described confession as the faith of the mouth. Second passage, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he's getting ready to send them out into the midst of wolves where where they will be persecuted and arrested and put to the sword. And he tells them, therefore... Everyone who confesses, speech, mouth, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You got it? Those who confess will be saved. Those who deny will be lost. Jesus is clear. Only those that openly and unashamedly confess Him before men will be saved. Those who deny Christ in the face of persecution, in fact, in the context of 10, especially in the face of persecution, trial, tribulation, death, will be denied by Christ. But we know, because we're good biblical theologians and we've been paying attention in the book of Hebrews that it's faith 
and faith alone that's the dividing line between God's promised rest and perishing in the wilderness, between being saved and going to heaven and being lost and going to hell. What's the difference? What's the dividing line? Faith. Faith in what? Faith plus nothing. Faith and faith alone. So how are we supposed to interpret Jesus' words here? Well, the only way to rightly interpret what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10 is to conclude that confession is merely faith spoken out. Faith professed. The faith of the mouth. And that there is such a close connection between the faith that I have in my heart and the words that come out of my mouth that Jesus can speak of them as one and the same thing. Faith without open confession, even in the face of persecution, especially in the face of persecution, is not true faith and it will not save. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's jump back to Hebrews 4. And the author, with his his heart burning with pastoral love for this congregation, he says, Beloved, let us hold fast. Just get a, a tight grip On our confession of our faith. The congregation to which he was writing was suffering persecution. They'd already been through it. It had at that time not been terribly severe. Hebrews 10, 33 and 34 says that they had been publicly reproached. Says that they had suffered the confiscation of their property. And they had endured. He, he, he encourages them and commends them. He says, and you endured such hostilities joyfully. But he warns them in chapter 12 and verse 4, but you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Which means that they had not yet been tested as severely as they soon would be. And if our estimate as to the date of this letter and as to the location of the church to whom it was written is right, that is the church at Rome in AD 64, things are about to get really hot for them. Nero is about to unleash the full fury of his insanity upon the saints at Rome. Literally, there are some in the congregation to which this this word is written who are about to be doused in oil and lit on fire as torches lining the streets of Rome. That's the context of words like, whoever confesses me before men. We're not playing around. Jesus isn't playing around when he says, you confess me before men, and I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Just a few verses before that, he told them, don't fear men who can kill you. I'll tell you who you should fear. You fear the one who has authority to take your life and cast you into hell. So he's writing to the church and he says, they're going to burn you. They're going to kill you. But you have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and for that reason, hold fast your confession. That's why it's there in verse 14 and not just the word belief. Because we might have the impression reading that That it only matters what goes on in the heart. And it's not true. 
Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 14. This is the call with which he, he, he concludes his letter. The call that he leaves with the church at Rome, the Hebrew Christians to whom he's writing. And he says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp. Listen, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking a city that is to come. You know what he's saying? He's saying Rome will not last. Its glory will not endure forever. But the city that we're looking for, the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, it's going to endure forever and its glory is going to outshine the sun. We're looking for a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will never fall. And only those who hold fast their confession to the very end, who go out to Christ outside the city, bearing his reproach, will enter into that kingdom. That has some application for our lives, doesn't it? Bearing his reproach. It matters, beloved, what you say in front of unbelieving people. Because what you say in front of unbelieving people is a pretty good indicator of what's inside your heart. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But the faith that God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit engenders in the heart of those whom He regenerates is a faith that bears His reproach and confesses Him openly before a hostile world. And if you're going to hold fast your confession, you better have a high priest standing at the right hand of the majesty on high who has your salvation securely in your hand. Because guess what? You cannot face the fires of Nero and be unsure about your standing before God. So the grounds of this exhortation, the reason why the author gives as to why we should hold fast our confession is because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And this is Jesus, the Son of God. This is an astounding statement. And it provides us with a foretaste of what we're going to unpack in chapters 5 and 7 and 8 and 9. We're not going to unpack all of the implications of this statement this morning. Because Jesus, as the great high priest who has offered up the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus as the one who is himself the Lamb of God who offered his own blood upon the altar of the cross. Jesus as the high priest who has been risen from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant and always lives to make intercession for his people. Those are all sermons that are coming up in chapters 5 and 7 and 10. For now, what I want to do is simply focus upon the supremacy of Christ that is revealed in this statement. He's better. He's greater. He is infinitely superior to all other high priests who have come before. See, access into the presence of God was severely limited to the people of Israel. A point, by the way, which was made abundantly clear in Exodus 19, the passage that I referenced at the beginning. God repeatedly warned His people in the law not to approach Him. 
lest his anger burst forth and they die in their iniquity. And even the high priest, the one who was appointed by God to represent the people in the very presence of God, could only go behind the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. He couldn't just waltz in any time. Only then could he enter into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, the very glorious presence of God. But not Jesus. That's his point. The supremacy of Jesus as the Son of God, our great high priest, is displayed in the fact that he passed through the heavens, ascending into the heavenly sanctuary, where he now dwells permanently in the presence of God, interceding continually on our behalf. So we read in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know what he's saying? After offering himself as the Lamb of God upon the altar of the cross, having secured by the sacrifice of himself our eternal redemption, Jesus then was raised from the dead, and assuming the role of our great high priest, he has ascended into the heavenly sanctuary. Not the earthly copy, the heavenly sanctuary. He has entered within the veil, and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the author says, that is why we must hold fast our confession. Because there is no other sacrifice sufficient to atone for our sins once for all. And there is no other high priest worthy to enter into God's presence and to stay there. And so there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one great high priest. There is one sacrifice for sin. And there is one way of salvation. And Jesus saves those and only those who trust him with a faith that openly confesses him and perseveres to the very end. He is at pains this morning to tell us that the kind of faith that we need to enter into his rest is a faith that endures and a faith that confesses. And that the way in which our faith can endure and confess to the very end in the face of even death is by looking to the great high priest who's seated at the right hand on high. Second exhortation, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, why? What's what's the grounds of the therefore in verse 16? Why should we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence? Verse 15, because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, we have a sympathetic, merciful, yet sinless high priest who is representing us before the Father. And for that reason, we need not fear to come before the throne of grace. For this high priest will see to it that we receive the mercy and find the grace that we need to help in our time of need. So here's the author or the the illustration that the author is painting. Let's put it all together. As the Son of God, 
Jesus is the great high priest who alone is qualified to pass through the heavens, to enter within the veil, and to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay? Son of God, he's qualified. But as the son of man, he's familiar with our temptations and he's familiar with the weaknesses that beset men. He knows the human condition by virtue of his incarnation. And he's sympathetic and he's merciful. He's qualified because he's the Son of God. And he's compassionate because he's the Son of Man. Who knows what it is to be tempted, having been tempted himself to a degree to which we could never fathom. He is the merciful and sympathetic high priest who from his position at the right hand of the Father invites us to enter into where he is. To come within the veil as it were. And receive mercy to cover all of our sins. And to receive grace to endure through every temptation that we may face. Full deity, verse 14. Full humanity, verse 15. Full salvation and access, verse 16. Verse 15 raises an important question. How can it possibly be true... That Jesus was tempted in all, I mean, it's a pretty sweeping statement, right? Tempted in all things like we are, as we are. For instance, how could Jesus possibly know the temptations that are unique to marriage? He wasn't married. How could he know the temptations that are unique to women? How, How could he know the temptations that are unique to living in a modern technological age? How how could Jesus possibly know what it's like to be tempted to cheat on your algebra test? Or to access pornography on your iPhone? How how could he know what it's like to to be tempted to despair when the market crashes and your 401k loses half of its value and your retirement's just gone with the wind? How could he possibly know what it's like to come into work one morning and find that your job has been outsourced and you've got a pink slip waiting on your desk? How how could he know what it's like to be tempted by those things? And if he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted by those things, how can he possibly sympathize with us in our temptation? Well, here's the answer. All temptation, no matter what form it takes and no matter what age it transpires and no matter what person faces it, All temptation is at its root a battle between the will of the flesh and the will of God. The question is, will I indulge the desire of my flesh? Or will I submit my will to the will of God as expressed in his word? And Jesus knows all about that battle. Jesus has has delved into the very deepest recesses of that temptation. He knows that experience by exhausted, agonized, starved, sweat drops of blood experience. He knows it from the wilderness when Satan came to him at the end of 40 days of fasting and tempted him to turn the stones that were nearby into bread that that he may satisfy his hunger rather than submitting his will to the will of God and satisfying the hunger of his soul on the, the bread of life. Have you ever felt the intense gnawing hunger of having not eaten for 40 days? 
I haven't eaten for three hours and my stomach's grumbling. This was the battle between the will of the flesh, which longed for bread, and the will of God, which wanted him to sustain himself on God's bread. And it's a battle that we know something about, but not nearly to the degree that the Son of God did. So Jesus knows about temptation. He knows it from the garden of Gethsemane, where his flesh is raging against the impending ordeal that he's about to face. You remember that scene in the garden when, he, when he's looking ahead and contemplating all that, that lies ahead of him? The beating and the scourging and the mockery and the crown of thorns and the cross and the nails. And far beyond even the physical pain, the experience of the atonement, where, where the, all of the vile and wicked and, and disgusting depravity of the world is, is placed upon his shoulders, is born in his very own soul when he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us and the father with whom he had experienced and enjoyed unbroken Trinitarian fellowship for all of eternity turns his face away. And he's looking ahead at, 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 at this that is coming in the next 12 hours. And he's literally sweating blood. And as Jesus prayed in the garden and he contemplated the hell that he's about to endure, his flesh is crying out for a way of escape. Father, if there be any way, let this cup of suffering and wrath pass from me. And in that moment, Jesus experienced a degree of temptation that you and I have never known anything about. So it's a little bit arrogant to sit here with my iPhone and say, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be me. Jesus knows what it's like to be you better than you know what it's like to be you. Will of the flesh, will of God. And he triumphed and overcame. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. So he knows what it is to be tempted, having experienced a fiercer temptation than any one of us will ever know. And he knows what it is to overcome temptation. And he knows how to overcome temptation. And what he offers to us in verse 16 is the very grace and strength we need to overcome through him. So now he sits, ascended and exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father and he prays for you and he prays for me in our battles against sin, our battles in, in the, between the will of the flesh and between the will of God, whatever form that battle may take and he sympathizes. More than that, he empathizes. He has felt the struggle and the fires of that conflict. And he invites you to draw near, to come to him in prayer, in the midst of your temptation, and he will give you the mercy and grace you need to say the very same thing. Not my will with these pictures. Not my will with this algebra test. Not my will with this, this despair over the market or this despair over my job or this despair over my, my marriage. I'm not going to despair. I'm going to trust. Not my will, but your will 
be done. And that is why we're invited to come near. And that is why we must draw near. And we can come. And we can come not trembling and not in dread and not saying like the Israelites were saying in Exodus 19, I don't want anything to do with this God who thunders from Sinai. Not fearful, not terrified that God's wrath is going to burst forth from the Holy of Holies and consume us in our sin. No, we can come in absolute confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished and complete atoning work of Jesus Christ. Absolute confidence that we will be welcomed and that the mercy of Christ will cover our every sin and that the grace of Christ is sufficient to overcome every temptation. It's hard to believe this morning. It's hard for me to believe this morning. And I imagine it's hard for you to believe this morning. But we who believe, First Baptist Nixon, we are accepted in the Beloved. We are invited into His presence. God has no wrath left for us. Why? Because there is a great high priest who stands at his right hand and his wounds for me shall plead. This is true of every one of you this morning. Every one of you who believe. You are invited. You will be accepted. Because you are justified by his blood. You are welcomed by his grace. You are clothed. In his righteousness, you can come near to God. What an astounding change of tone from Exodus 19. What a privilege to live under the new covenant. No more smoke and rumbles of Sinai for us. Everything about that scene in Exodus 19 just screamed out, Do not approach. Do not come near. I'm holy and you're not. Everything in the construction of the tabernacle, everything in the construction of the temple, everything about old covenant worship screamed, there is a separation. But the good news of the new covenant is that Sinai is not our mountain any longer. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, and to the blast of the trumpet, and to the sound of words, which words were such that those who heard begged that no further word be given them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned, and so terrible was its sight that even Moses confessed, I am full of fear and trembling says the author in Hebrews chapter 12. That's not your mountain. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So we've heard 
the rumbles of Sinai over the past few weeks, and their warning is well received. It's a warning against unbelief. It's a warning against faithlessness. But now is the time for us to hear the call of Zion that invites us to come and to enter in by faith and to find their peace and rest and mercy and forgiveness and grace and strength. And so we're exhorted in light of that call to hold fast our confession because Revelation 21.8 says that the cowardly and unbelieving will not enter. Only way to get into Zion is to get in through a confessing faith. And we are invited to draw near to the throne of grace because we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens and has entered within the veil and has sprinkled on the mercy seat the blood of the covenant and has prepared the way for us to enter with full and and unfearful access. And we have a great high priest, this passage declares, who is full of sympathy and full of mercy and full of grace for believing sinners like us, helpless sinners like us, dependent, tempted sinners like us. And the promise is you can come to him with your sin and you can come to him with your need and you will not find the grapes of wrath and the fire of fury. You will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. And the question that I would leave with you this morning is do you believe that? Come to him with your temptation. Some of you endured great temptation last night. Some of you walked in this morning in the midst of great temptation. Go to the throne of grace. He's got mercy and grace to help you overcome. Some of you come here this morning having given in to temptation and you're full of guilt and you're full of shame and you're full of sin and you wonder how could I ever have access to the holy of holies. You come to him because he's full of grace for sinners like you and his blood has sprinkled the tabernacle. It sprinkled the mercy seat. It has covered the law. And you have access. Come to the throne of grace. Come with mercy. Or come seeking mercy. Come with confidence. And I promise you two things. That are radically different from the message of Exodus 19. If you come. You will not die. If you do not come. You will die. Do not perish outside the holy of holies in unbelief. You come to the throne of grace. You come, receive mercy, receive grace, receive life. This is on the authority of the great high priest who has already gone before. You hear him calling to you? Calling from within the veil? You come. You come. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice calling from the right hand of the majesty on high, you come with confidence before the throne of grace and you receive the mercy and the grace 
that he so richly offers you.